Well, I'm asking you to turn to Acts chapter 17. We are going to look at the passage that deals with Paul at the Areopagus. In a few weeks, I hope to start the letters to the churches in Revelation, brief series before coming back into this building and starting Philippians. But one of the reasons that we come to Acts chapter 17 is because the day in which we live, more and more people know nothing about the Bible. And there is an intellectual arrogance that needs to be addressed by Christians. The gospel needs to be preached and taught as we are here, building biblical literacy constantly, but also out there in the world in which people do not know anything about the Word of God. And that's the situation faced by Paul in Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. Let's bow in prayer before reading. We ask, Heavenly Father, your blessing upon our time and your words that we may understand that you have ordained the preaching of the Word of God in all of its richness and fullness that Christ himself preaches to his people as the Word is faithfully expounded. So may we give our minds and hearts attention to it. And we ask that your people not only will understand more readily and greatly the wonder of grace in our lives, but also how to take this great gospel, this needed gospel, into the world around us. But also, Heavenly Father, that those who may be among us today who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ will come to faith in him as they hear the word of God proclaimed. We pray this asking for the blessed work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. This is the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope 
that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Paul in Athens, though not great in the way in which Athens had been in the age of Pericles, It was still the intellectual center of the world with all the heady thoughts and pride that come with such sources. Waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him, Paul will not be idle, he will preach the gospel, and so he makes his way into Athens and he begins to observe the city. How would he react to what he saw? How does this help us to proclaim Christ in our day and our time, given the cultural and intellectual commitments of the world? How should we live in it? The Christian church never shies away, not when she's obedient, never shies away from what Dr. Van Til used to call the intellectual challenge of the gospel, because we know that the only rational position begins and ends with submission to the Word of God. So as we move in this text, let's first of all see Paul's response to idolatry. Paul's response to idolatry. Athens was smothered in idols. It was swarming with idols. An ancient had written that it was easier to find in Athens a god than a man. And Xenophon had said, Athens is one great altar. And there he is looking at this beautiful city, and Paul certainly knew how to appreciate culture and beauty, and he also knew how to grieve when aesthetics were used to pervert the truth. And as Paul was moving about this fascinating city, the New Testament uses a word to describe his feelings, paraxuno. The term means to provoke to wrath. His heart was provoked to wrath as he went about the city. We derive our term paroxysm from it. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul's heart is beating fast and he's almost in cardiac arrest. And that is because Paul's heart is jealous for the living and the true God. The God who says in Exodus 34, 14, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The one who says in Isaiah 42, 17, They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols and who say to metal images, you are our gods. Now every time I read Acts 17, I I, I really mean every time, I think of the time in which Vince Strawbridge Jr. and I were in Warsaw. It was a very cold March morning, very, very cold, and we had gotten up early and we made our way through the city of Warsaw. Warsaw is an ugly city. 
It was bombed during the Second World War. The old town was completely destroyed. That part has now been rebuilt, but it's very small. The city itself was built in that gray Stalinist fashion. The color comes from watching and observing the people, and that's what we were doing. We made our way through the various tunnels and and, uh, underground portions of the city as people very early were making their way to work. And as we were watching the people, we also looked in the shop windows that had not yet opened, and there we saw a statue of Mary, and we thought, well, it's a Roman Catholic country. We went to another, and we saw in a window the same thing, and another in the same place, we saw a statue of Mary. And our hearts were moved, much like Paul's in Athens. And later we are told that Mariolatry was rife in Poland. Well, that's what Paul experiences. He sees idolatry, and his heart is broken and moved and even angry at the idolatry that would take from God his glory, and he is jealous for his name. Now, there are essentially two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love and worship and serve the Creator because their hearts are born from above, and there are those who, in an overweening way, love and worship and serve the creature. And Paul was always clear about this. He would never allow his message to be amalgamated with the worldview of those who worship and serve the creature, and he never compromised the gospel of Christ. So which are you? Are you in covenant with God through Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? Is your heart changed? Are you one who worships and loves the Creator? Or are you one who worships and loves the created thing? What motivated Paul to evangelize was simply this. Not only that there were lost people in Athens, that certainly concerned him. But what motivated the Apostle Paul in this place and in every place and in all of the preaching of his gospel was the glory of God. He was concerned that the name of Christ was not exalted in the lives of people in the world. Jealousy for God's name controlled his concern. I've told you this story before, but it's so applicable, let me repeat it, that Henry Martin, the great missionary to Persia, on one occasion watched a terrible persecution of Christians, not unlike what we are seeing today, undoubtedly, in Iraq and other places. And Henry Martin was so deeply grieved and concerned, one of his Muslim friends to whom he was ministering the gospel and trying to lead Christ, one of his Muslim friends came up to Henry Martin and said, I've had a dream. And in that dream, I saw Christ lift his hand up and take the skirt of Mohammed. And Mohammed has has gone to Allah, and Allah has said that soon the persecution will be over. And then the Muslim, not yet converted to Christ, saw come across the face of Henry Martin deep grief and sadness and perhaps even anger. And he said, what's wrong? I thought you would be happy to hear that the persecution soon would be over. But as Henry Martin thought of Christ under Mohammed, under this false god Allah, he said to his friend, it would be hell to me if Christ were thus dishonored. Now I wonder, does that control your heart and mind and thinking as well? Is there something within your heart and mind so that you can say, I would think it a hell if my Savior were not uplifted and exalted were he underneath these idols that fill the world. Hallowed be thy name was the theme of Paul's life. And I wonder, what would our lives be like 
if that attitude controlled us. So that's Paul's attitude and response to idolatry. But secondly, see Paul in the agora. Paul in the agora, in the marketplace. In verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And it goes on to mention the Epicureans and the Stoics with whom he debated. So we have the marketplace, generally the place of public gatherings. Today we might think of the student cafeteria or other social settings. And Paul felt, Paul felt compelled to take the gospel to the lost where the lost were. Some of you know that I've had the privilege in life of knowing Dr. Cornelius Van Til. Dr. Van Til was the greatest apology, in my opinion, that has ever walked the globe. One of the finest theologians of the 20th century and of the church throughout history. And yet, Dr. Van Til, in his 80s, I have a photograph if you want to see it. You can actually find it online. Dr. Van Til, in his 80s, went to Wall Street. And when most PhDs in theology were drowsing in their armchairs, there you have this picture of Dr. Van Til preaching on the city streets in Wall Street, preaching the gospel in New York City on the streets. Well, that's what's going on with Paul the Apostle here. He's not drowsing in his armchair. He could not be silent. He must preach the gospel. And he ends up disputing, of course. Philosophy in Athens was considered to be the way. It was not just a course in a college. It was really, at base, religious. Epicureans were basically the deists of their day. Stoics were pantheists and filled with works righteousness. And the philosophers misunderstood Paul. Note how it's put there in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they offered two criticisms of the Apostle Paul. First of all, he's called a babbler. Actually, the word literally means seed picker. And very possibly as they watched the birds who were picking up food in the agora, they said he's just a seed picker. He's eclectic. He doesn't have a system. Just odds and ends. He's just a babbler. And then secondly, they said he was advocating foreign gods. Jesus and Anastasis. Resurrection. Probably thinking that he was proclaiming a false deity named Jesus and his consort, it's in the feminine, Anastasis. And so they have no idea what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about, which is true of our culture today. And that will happen to us too. When we go out and we speak in the name of Christ and we speak of his resurrection from the dead, there are people all around us who will misunderstand what we are saying. And more and more as our culture becomes more deeply biblically illiterate. So are you willing to speak for Jesus, though you will be misunderstood? But it opens a further opportunity. Paul is swept into the Areopagus, which is a kind of philosophical review board. And thirdly, we see this, the gospel challenge to sinful ignorance. The gospel challenge to sinful ignorance. And we begin here with verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of this philosophical review board at the Areopagus, said... 
Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Man is created in God's image and has what Calvin called the sensus divinitatis or the sensus deitatis, a sense of deity. Man must worship. He has to worship someone or something. Man is religious to the core. And man, however, suppresses the truth about God, but it must come out. It must. Man must worship something or someone. So what does Paul mean in verse 23 when he says, What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's not compromising with paganism. He's not saying it's okay as far as you've gotten, but you just need something to fill out your knowledge. Paul is clear everywhere that man without Christ is lost, the need is the gospel, and Paul never compromised the exclusivity of the gospel. And the emphasis here is on their ignorance, sinful, culpable ignorance. Acts should be interpreted in light of what the Apostle Paul says in the first chapter of the book of Romans. When speaking of the pagans, he says in verse 21 of Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And he says in verse 18 of Romans 1, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so they are truth suppressors, like taking the beach ball and pushing it underwater, but it constantly pops out. They are religious to the core, but they are suppressing the truth, but the truth is nonetheless inescapable. So what is Paul saying? N.B. Stonehouse put it this way. Paul is indicating that he will inform them with regard to that concerning which they acknowledge ignorance. So sinners are constantly surrounded by God's faithful revelation. Every atom of the universe screams that God is. Men know God in that way. And they are aware of His eternal power and Godhead. They are creatures of God and every human being knows it. But they do not like the God who is. It's not that men do not know the God who is. It's that we sinners do not like the God who is. Men hate God and suppress His truth. But His truth, as I've said, is inescapable. Every atom of the universe screams that God is. You know, C.S. Lewis, in telling about his own conversion, says that if a young man wishes to avoid God, he must be very careful of what he reads. He says a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere, Bibles laid open, millions of surprises, as Herbert says, fine nets and stratagems. And so as he tried to avoid God, the more he attempted to avoid God, the more of those nets and stratagems he fell into as God drew this man to himself. And then he found that his friends, his atheist friends, were becoming theists and many of them becoming Christians. What's going on here, he thought. Well, what Lewis saw was that in fact men are created in God's image and therefore are accessible to God and that the true and the living God is inescapable. And so man's ignorance of God is not naive ignorance, 
Man's ignorance of God is sinful, willful ignorance. Children of Adam are religious to the core, and yet they want God out of the way. Like Adam in his disobedience, there can be no place for the true and the living God in the thinking and living of the children of Adam. You know the statement of Nietzsche, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? Well, that's precisely our problem. If there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? We all, apart from the knowledge of Christ, salvation in Him, we want to be our own God. Well, as we move along, fourthly, how did Paul challenge this sinful ignorance? Now, here I want to say about six things under this fourth point, because it's all here in the text. How did Paul challenge this sinful ignorance? The framework that they need to understand reality, because they know nothing of the Bible. The Apostle Paul, therefore, brings them all of this biblical content. And he begins by saying this, I'm going to challenge your sinful ignorance by pointing to God the Creator. Paul proclaimed God the Creator. Look at verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the point of contact is that we are created in the image of God, and he strikes at the pride of sinful man by saying the God who is the creator is completely self-contained. He is not dependent on us. We, rather, are dependent on God. He needs nothing and no one outside of himself. He is not contained in temples. He is not manipulated by his creatures. And I think how we respond to that says a great deal about our hearts. Is this the God that we love and worship, or is this the God from whom we run? But then also notice that as he challenges with the gospel their sinful, culpable ignorance, that he proclaimed that this creator God is the governor of men and events. In other words, he's the God of providence. He says God is sovereign over his world, verses 26 and 27 And he made from one man, that's Adam, by the way, one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So God is sovereign over his world. He is the creator, but he also is the ruler of history and bringing all things to its end point. Paul is not arguing for God's existence. They know this. All men know that God exists. Conscience says yes to his message. Without him, you can prove nothing. Paul's message is busy judging the hearts of sinners. And Paul, in effect, is saying this. Just like in a Greek tragedy, you wear masks, every one of you. You wear masks by your philosophy and religion and moralism. Just as each character in a Greek tragedy has his distinctive mask, so your philosophies may differ in form, but at bottom they're the same. They're masks. They are a cover-up for reality. But the day is already fixed, and the masks will be ripped off, Paul, in essence, says, by the one who was raised from the dead. Then, as he moves from creation to providence, Paul, thirdly, proclaims that God is the revealer. In verse 26, when he says he made from one man every nation 
of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And then in verse 27, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. And then in verse 28, he quotes Epimenides and Aratus. Epimenides is correct when he says, in whom we live and move and have our being. Yes, that's true of God. Aratus is correct, for we are indeed his offspring. But they were only formally correct. Sinners may say things that are formally correct because they live on borrowed capital, but the need is for men to see these things in the Christian framework, and it's that framework that I'm presenting to you, Paul is saying. And Paul moves quickly there, proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. But as he gets there, notice, fourthly, that he preaches the judgment that is to come. God is the creator. He is the God of providence. He is the one who reveals himself. But also, he is the one who will judge at the consummation of all things. Verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the Creator is the one to whom every one of us will give an account. Creation is not only important for beginnings, it is essential for a right view of the ending The Creator has the right to judge His creatures, and Christ risen from the dead will be the judge. And I wonder, how is it possible in light of this constant emphasis in Paul, and constant emphasis in the New Testament, upon the judgment to come, that the church thinks today it has the right to set aside an emphasis on this, as if people can understand the gospel without it, or to set aside the emphasis of the New Testament on the wrath of God which is surely coming. How is it possible for us to do that? To refuse to see as essential a part of the proclamation of Christ that the Scripture makes so central. And in verse 30, Paul is saying just what he wrote in Romans 3.25 and also says in Acts 14.16 that God had had an attitude of forbearance in times past. That is to say, He did not yet enter into the final judgment. But all is different now. Everything has changed because Christ has come. And the gospel in its fullness is proclaimed. And the next thing on God's eschatological clock for those who do not trust in Him is the day of judgment. And so in light of the coming judgment, fifthly, Paul proclaimed the urgent need of men and women and children, all men everywhere, everyone, in every place, to repent. Let's read it again, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. All right, there was a time of forbearance. But now, things are different now. Christ has come, and he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now note, if you will, that it is universal. All men everywhere are commanded to repent. Don't think I'm the exception. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus teaches us this in John 5 and in other places. 
everyone will come to the judgment. And we will either stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, having already been justified by faith, we will be acquitted before a watching universe, or we will be eternally condemned to hell if we do not trust Him and know Him. So I'm not the exception. You aren't either. And you know within your heart that what I'm saying is true because eternity is written on your heart. Every one of us will stand before this God in the day of judgment. Jesus Christ is held out to each of us as a Savior now, now in the preaching of the gospel. But in that day, Jesus will wear judges' robes. Listen, a Roman Catholic bishop whose name was Stephen Gardner, those of you who read about the Reformation will know his name. Stephen Gardner reintroduced laws for burning Protestants during the English Reformation. And on his deathbed he said, I have denied my master with Peter, but I cannot repent with Peter. His heart was so hard that it was too late. Sixthly, Paul proclaims the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Remember back there in verse 18, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They didn't know what that meant. And now we find in verse 30, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This absolute certainty of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the indispensable fact that is necessary for understanding reality as well as understanding how to be saved from the judgment. The resurrection tells us of God who hates sin and yet has intervened to save sinners. But this same one who has intervened as the Savior is the one who will bring judgment on the day that is yet to come. And so Paul is saying, it is this framework for reality that you Greeks lack in your worldly wisdom. You will never understand reality apart from Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Apart from this, you are lost, and all of your speculations are worthless. You know, William Ramsey, the great archaeologist, speaking of Paul, said something to the effect that Paul the Apostle's whole theory of life had been founded on the belief that Jesus was not alive. And then when he saw him on the Damascus road, his whole theory of life crumbled to dust. If he was not dead, he was not an imposter. And so the fact of the resurrection of Jesus remade the universe for Paul. It recreated his life and soul and thought and energy. And so Paul, knowing that Jesus has been raised by the power of God from the dead, cannot help but go and to preach to these Greeks and to these philosophers, to these Epicureans and to the Stoics and those who were in the Agora, as well as to the Jews in the synagogue, you need this Savior who was raised from the dead. So Paul is pointing these philosophers to a whole new world and an entirely new way of seeing and living. And I ask, do you see how fundamental this is, how essential, how transformative, do you understand that your entire Christian life is resurrection life and is defined that way by Paul? So God will accept no one who attempts to clean himself up. He will accept no one who substitutes for the gospel his philosophy or 
his highfalutin ideas. Paul, who had seen the risen Christ, is not ashamed to preach Jesus risen from the dead. And we who have believed on the apostles' testimony should be unashamed to speak a word for Jesus, the risen Christ, and essentially to say to those around us who do not know him, you have built your life on a spider's web. Your life needs to be built on the sure foundation of God's revelation in Christ who was raised by God's power from the grave. And no doubt Paul would have unpacked the meaning of the cross. Go sometimes to 2 Corinthians 5 and notice the latter part of 2 Corinthians. I've always thought that that latter portion was a summary of Paul's preaching in the Agora, in the marketplace. But he didn't have time to preach the cross. He didn't have time to say, this one can save because he's raised from the dead. But let me also tell you what he did about your guilt Because when he preached the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it was such a rock of offense. It was foolishness to the Greeks. And when he spoke of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it effectively ended the meeting. Which leads me to the fifth thing, the results. The results of the preaching of Paul at the Areopagus. Everyone fell on his knees and repented and they all became Christians. Right? You know that's not true. Let's read verses 32 and following again. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. I don't know how sincere they were, perhaps. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what were the results of the preaching of the greatest preacher other than the Lord Jesus Christ who has ever walked the face of the globe, Paul the Apostle. They built this great megachurch in Athens, didn't they? And they just filled it up, right? No, some sneered. Some rejected the gospel outright. We will not have the Creator. We need no Redeemer. If what you're preaching is true, Paul, it just ruins our towers of Babel. Oh, my Greek friends, Paul is saying, in rejecting the gospel, you will be rejecting your only hope in life and in death. It will lead to a further hardening of your hearts. And where will you stand on the day of judgment? But they rejected. Others said, we'll hear you again. I don't know if they ever heard again the gospel. Dangerous to say, we'll hear the gospel again. You don't know if you'll have again. And a few believed in Jesus. Paul went out from their midst, and we're told in chapter 18, verse 1, that Paul left. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. But the seed was planted. And I think the point that we should take with us as we think of the results of his preaching is simply this. We are not responsible for the results. We are responsible to be faithful to preach, if we're called to preach, or to speak a word for Christ, or for praying for the lost, or sending our missionaries, or praying for them, but we are not responsible for the results. The results are always in God's hands. So let me bring 
a handful of final thoughts and applications from this passage to us. First is this. The application to our church is simple. Get the message out. The uncompromising message of the gospel. The message of who God is challenging modern ignorance. The message of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that batters down all false hopes and leaves only one hope before sinners. Let's lovingly tell people the truth about God and the truth about themselves. Let's lovingly tell people that there's only one mediator between God and man and that is the man Christ Jesus. Let's get the message out. And all of us have opportunities for that on a regular basis. Secondly, be willing to be dismissed, mocked, ignored, and thought a fool for the sake of the gospel. These Greeks, the body is the prison house of the soul, they thought. The resurrection is an impossibility, they thought. And so the resurrection of the dead was a great offense to them. Dr. Ventil rightly said that Paul was not saying that the wisdom of the Greeks was merely inadequate, but that their wisdom was sinful. The entire house of their interpretation must be broken down. To reject Christ is to commit spiritual, intellectual, moral suicide. And he's right. And there's bound to be conflict when we tell men the truth about themselves. They won't like it because by nature we hate the God who is and who claims lordship over my life. But turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus is speaking, and he called to him the crowd. This is Mark 8, 34. He called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Are you ashamed of Christ? Are you ashamed of his gospel? Turn to Romans 1. Paul's epistle to the Romans, the first chapter, beginning with verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. You see, he says, I owe it to them. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here is the Apostle Paul, unashamed, 
And here is the Lord Jesus saying, if you're ashamed of me and my gospel, then I will be ashamed of you on that great day. Thirdly, don't judge the results of the gospel by what you see or by the immediate response. Just be faithful. The sermon will have fruit. It will be seen in eternity. Some believed when Paul preached. Many did not. Others said, I'll talk again maybe with you. But the point is, on the day of judgment, the Lord Jesus will say to some, you were there when you heard the gospel. You heard my apostle preach. Some of you believed on me. Some of you did not. If you did not believe, you arrogantly disdained the gospel. The fruit of believing will be life eternal. The fruit of unbelief will be eternal destruction in the presence of the Lord. Eternal punishment of the wicked. That's what the Bible teaches. I didn't make that up. And then lastly, if then you are sitting here today and you are an unbeliever, the application to you is plain. Verse 30. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent. So we have brought you glad tidings this morning. God is the creator who rules all things. This God has intervened through his son. He has raised him from the dead for the salvation of sinners. That's good news. But you need to know that you have wronged God and the judgment is before us. And God receives sinners who trust in his son. But remember the words of an old theologian. God who pardons him that repents has not promised to give him tomorrow to repent in. And just in the event that you didn't catch it, God who pardons him that repents has not promised to give him tomorrow to repent in. Repent without delay. Turn to Christ's blood alone and trust in the risen Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.